So hello, Kate Moss. Uh, welcome to Time Team Tea Time. Lovely to have you here. You've had kind of a busy week last week, I understand. A very busy week last week. Um, we were celebrating the 25th Women's Prize for Fiction, uh, which I'm, I'm one of the founder directors of. And of course, we had so many plans for, you know, it was going to be the party of all parties that had ever happened for the book world. Uh, but of course, like everybody else, we uh, were on Zoom instead. But, you know, it was it was wonderful because it meant that readers from all over the world could join in. So we had four nights of a digital festival and there were thousands of people and it was popping up saying hello from Saudi Arabia, hello from Tunisia, hello from Bulgaria, hello from South Africa. Um, and that was wonderful because many people were saying they couldn't have ever come to Women's Prize events before. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for it. I'd, I'd rather be sitting in your beautiful garden talking face to face, but there is still quite a lot to be said. So 25th winner, Maggie O'Farrell, for her beautiful novel, Hamlet, about the death of Shakespeare's son and the, you know, Hamlet's twin, and really about um, Agnes, you know, Anne Hathaway, but a beautiful novel. So well, I've come down to earth now and, you know, back at my desk writing. When I first bumped into Labyrinth, which was a long time ago, um, I remember being sort of delighted uh, because it kind of begins with an archaeologist. <laughs> Your wonderful character, Alice Tanner, and she's there. I like the fact that she's not some pro-archaeologist. She's <laughs> a volunteer, and she's a little bit naughty. She goes a bit off-piste and finds herself in a strange cave and subsequently finds some of the objects that are going to carry her through that novel. And I wondered, lis listening, looking at that piece and thinking about it, I felt somehow I wondered if you'd had some direct experience of archaeology. Had you been on a dig? Because it seemed to be very well informed <laughs> about the naughty things people can get up to. Where well, did it that, come from? That's a great compliment if you feel that it, it was uh, convincing. Um, absolutely. I grew up in the village of Fishbourne in Sussex, um, about a mile from where I am now. And my one of my sisters lives there and my other sister lives in the village the other side. You know, we're all, we, the apples did not fall far from, from the Sussex tree, as it were. And my parents were, they're both gone now, sadly, but they were wonderful uh, people about being part of the community. They felt that you lived somewhere, you did things for it. And this meant that when Fishbourne Roman Palace which is the largest private palace that's been found in the UK, um, was being excavated and discovered. My parents were, as people who lived in the village, uh, joined in, you know, they went along to digs. And more than that, we had real archaeologists would stay with us. Um, and there was a particular uh, a couple called uh, Helena and Adrian, um, who stayed with us quite a lot. And they, they felt that there were always people with jeans sleeping on the sitting room floor and going up. And I was fascinated by this. Um, I never quite decided to do it, it's my thing. But the idea of the past, the real truth about the past, not lying in books so much, which could be partial and biased, but lying in the land beneath your feet, was enshrined in, you know, in me very early. And then my ma went on to help with the Mary Rose. Um, so it was always something that seemed, if you live somewhere, why wouldn't you want to excavate? Why wouldn't you be a detective for your own land? So yes, Kate, it very much came from that. 
And I love the fact that, in a sense, in that a starting point in that cave, you had some of the, you know, on Time Team, we did many different sites all over the place. Um, but there's certain things you always remember digging, and skeletons are one of them. Finding your first brooch is one of them. And the chance of finding something carved in the past. And I think, where, did that scene start the novel? Was that the first starting point in your mind, or did you come to that later, having done the plot? Well, I people think that I'm not being truthful about my writing process when I say this because my plots are very um, complicated. Uh, I love plot and I love story and I work very, very hard to make sure that every tiny detail or clue rewards the reader somewhere further down the line. But my first draft of any of my novels is always all emotion. It's a sitting down, having done years of research before I start, and saying, okay, let's see Let's see what book you're writing, Kate, what type of book you're writing. So with Labyrinth, which is a time slip novel, it's set partly in the 13th century, 1209 to 1244, and partly in the then modern day, so 2005. It was a, a lot of research into the Cathar heresy, so-called um, heretics of the southwest of France and Italy, a dualistic religion. Um, it's my first love letter to Carcassonne, where we have a small house, and that area, Languedoc, and I certainly went to Montségur, was the beginning of the inspiration for the novel. And going there years after I'd been reading about it and knowing that that was the final stand of the Cathars against the invasion of it, both the crusade, but also the invasion of the north, uh, the south by the north. And just that spirit of place in Montségur, even though it's not the actual as you would know, it's not the actual site that was there then in 1209 and 1244. And I climbed the mountain on my own. And I knew that it had been very badly excavated in 1944 by Nazi treasure hunters, Grail treasure hunters. It's a Grail story. And going up there and standing at the top on Montsegur for the first time, and just having this extraordinary feeling of what would it have been like at dawn on the 16th of March, 1244? to stand here on this wall, having been under siege, and look down and see the pyre that they were building to burn you, and know that you would never see all this beauty again. And that was where the character came from. I suddenly had an image of a woman pulling a red cloak around herself. And years later, when I was writing that scene in Labyrinth, I suddenly I was typing and Alais pulled her red cloak around herself, and I thought, oh, it's you, I met you on that wall 10 years ago, but I didn't know who you were. So for me, that's how novels work. And the minute I started writing, I just thought, of course, it must start here on that mountain. It must start with a dig, because there is no better metaphor for history than the idea of a modern woman discovering something of a woman who had lived 800 years before. So as soon as I realized that, I thought, oh, of course. Of course, it starts with land, with the land. And you mentioned the Grail. I think, uh, like many writers, you've, you've had the issue of what is the Grail. Yes. And we've had various incarnations of it. You took a particular route to describe what the Grail was. And in order to make it happen, there were three books. But would you like to describe a bit 
what for you became the grail in that book? Well, the, the thing is, of course, I wrote that a long time ago now. So I'm like going through my filing in my head, like, ah, what did I say? Um, I think for me, it was, I was fascinated by um, the idea that essentially in all of the monotheistic religions, there is, of course, at the heart of it, um, a rebirth story. And that actually within everything, uh, you know, I grew up in a very traditional Christian um, environment. You know, we went to school on Sundays. It meant a lot to my father. My aunt was one of the women who founded the movement for the ordination of women. My grandfather was a vicar. My godmother was a nun. So I grew up in the sense of these being everyday stories. But I was interested in two things. Firstly, in France, the fact that labyrinth, uh, they sprung up all over in the, the 13th, 12th, 13th and 14th century as a, in the Shemans of Jerusalem, the people who could not go on uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, but you could walk the labyrinth, usually seven, but often 11, all over Europe. But yet in France, there were more labyrinths in France than the rest of Europe put together. And that interested me. And I thought, I wonder if I can write a novel to kind of answer why that might have been. Um, and of course, with the, the, the grail that I uh, create, I, I very deliberately do not call it a holy grail. It is actually the sense of human life going on. The fact that we walk in the footsteps of the past and, the, and humans will go on long after we've all gone. And that that is, should be a comforting thing, not a terrible thing. But it is also a sense of the responsibility of the grail and the person who is the grail holder um, in, in, in the novel, it is a character called Audrey Bayard, who is a young boy at the beginning called Sage. And of course, it's a curse to live beyond your allotted five score uh, years and ten, um, because you, everybody you love dies and you go on and all of these things. But the responsibility is to bear witness to history and to tell the truth of history so that it will never be repeated in a bad sense and it will never be forgotten. So that, for me, is really what it's about. It's about memory and truth-telling. And it was interesting that you required the three books to be brought together in order for the, for the, for the major transformative event to happen. Um, and I think that there was something very exciting about that, that they had to be brought together and yes. therefore yes. it only happened at the end. Um, the interesting thing about some of the content of that, you have the Trancavel family. I don't the know. Trancavel, yeah. The yeah. Trancavel <laughs> family. You have Bayard, who appears in your other novels, and he seems to be, in a way, your homage to the historian. Um, I rather like the fact that uh, John Hurt played him. I know, in the film. <laughs> what a nice person to have playing. Oh, I know, I know. And it was very weird because I was writing, when we were filming Labyrinth for the miniseries uh, for Channel 4, it was, I was still writing the third of the Longer Doc trilogy. And of course, as it's why I tried to avoid that ever since. You know, I need to finish the series I'm writing at the moment. I'm finishing before they start filming. Because from that moment onwards, John was Bayard and, you know, and he dressed in the white suit that Bayard always wears, but he really did look like Samuel Beckett. You know, sort of, he got sort of spiky hair like that and it was like, oh no. So, and it really changed how I was writing the characters. So I learned a very interesting lesson about adaptation that, you know, finish writing your characters, kill them off uh, <laughs> before you have an actor animating them and bringing them to life. Um, but he was, 
you know, I, I think that sense also of books being um, at the heart of things. We tend to forget, you guys don't, and this is, of course, why Time Team is so wonderful, is the idea that history is not a linear progress to the sun, sunny uplands, that history goes backwards as well as forwards, that we lose a great deal of knowledge, and that history is a pendulum, really, and it swings backwards and forwards. And so the idea of there being books that are held by people of different faiths, but that together there is a, a truth and a strength was very important to me. So one of the uh, people who guards one of the books is, is a woman because Cathars had female priests parfait as well as male priests parfait. Uh, one of them is Jewish, and this is really important because there were many schools of Jewish thought um, in the southwest of France and in, in that period as well. Um, and of course, there were many, they wouldn't have used um, the word Muslim in the same sort of way, but there were also schools of, of um, Arabic um, and Talmudic thought. And so for me, that was also important to not keep saying this is Christian grail. This is all of humankind owns this, owns this knowledge. And I, in a sense, am I'm sort of following uh, what I might call as the artifacts on one side yeah. in imagination. We've had the skeletons, the the grail ring which appears, the books. And at any stage, did you find some objects that really, uh, real objects in museums or that you had in mind that began to sort of, you could hold on to in this, in that same way as you went to a place and you got that sense of the Cathars. Were there some artifacts, some objects that, that did that for you as well? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, the very great Neil McGregor, who of course was um, in charge of the British Museum and is now in Germany. Uh, he described in his, his wonderful book, A History of the World in 100 Objects, he calls it the charisma of things. And I think that that for me is almost as important as the place, is the idea that when you hold a psalter in your hands, or as you mentioned, a brooch, or you see a shoe, you immediately have the texture and the nature of life in a way that you simply don't get from the pages of a book because everything is, is flattened by description, if you like. However, beautifully it's written, it's, it's, it's flattened. Whereas, you know, the, the, the sequence of books I'm writing at the moment, which is inspired by the Huguenot diaspora, seeing a tiny Bible in the museum in Flanshoek in South Africa that had been smuggled after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes to South Africa in a loaf of bread, and you could see just tiny little bits that look like crumbs still in there. That immediately you feel the fear and the pain and the excitement and the fact that it is worth for that person risking their life to hide their Bible in French inside a loaf of bread, even if they're starving. They, you know, that tells you what people's lives were like more than anything else. So I am an inveterate hunter of um, old books in particular. And one of the things that I found in an old uh, sort of vide cronier, a sort of a um, car boot sale, we call it, in, in France, in a village outside Carcassonne, was a beautiful old book uh, with a tiny buckle um, and that incredible tracing paper. And it had been found buried under the floorboards in a local village house. And the second, as a novelist, you touch something like that, you start to imagine all the people that might have touched that book before. And of course, then several books down the road, that book then appears, um, you know. So for me, objects speak louder than words often. And I think uh, 
stay with Labyrinth for a minute, you also managed to bring in the fact of Champion, the, the translator, yeah. um, who did an amazing, um, fairly late in time, began to translate the Rosetta Stone, and you brought that in. So the, the book has that strength, I think. And, and I very much enjoyed that idea that there was a translation had to take place between us understanding it. That yeah. It might not be in English, as you said. It, Harif is taking it back to Coptic, I think. Yeah, yeah, yes. Have you seen any Coptic books? or Because later in um, Citadel, we have the Codex comes in. Yes. <laughs> and, yes, uh, I, um, I have a very strange piece of family history. Um, and uh, looking at me, it, it doesn't seem terribly likely. But my great-grandfather was um, a, a Coptic Christian, um, Arab Coptic Christian from Egypt, from Cairo, and was adopted, as, as it was described, um, by a Christian couple and brought to England in the very early days of mandate. Uh, so sort of 1901, 1902, that, that sort of time. And I've always therefore been interested in that strange family link. And my mother and I, uh, it was really out of character for both of us, but after I'd done my A-levels, we booked, she booked, of course, um, a package tour, and we went to Egypt on a trip. And we were so naive. I mean, we did, did such dangerous things. You know, people would say, do you want to come off and see my village? And we'd go, yeah, that'd be great. You know, we'd tra you know I'd traveled really not at all. And... But part of that was to actually go and see Cairo and be there. And the Museum of Cairo is the most extraordinary place. Um, I have not been there for many years. But then there were, I mean, treasures just everywhere. You know, the, an ancient crocodile, mummified crocodile, just sitting on the top of a cabinet. And there I saw Coptic books and I saw Coptic script. And I've always been very interested in uh, the Coptic religion and the the differences, obviously, with that with that very much older form of Christianity that survived in the Eastern Christianity, and always, you know, in all of my books, there is a bookseller or someone who, because I feel in the end, you know, it's the one thing as a non-archaeologist, but as a novelist and a writer, it's one thing I can make sure that the books always hold centre stage, and I think there is also a beauty, um, you know, when I was talking in you know investigating into Champollion. And all of that sort of those particular you know, Napoleon's uh, trip, you know, out there in 1799 to Egypt, you know, the, the raids as they essentially were. But I think there is something incredibly moving, which you must find all the time when you look at something. And to start with, you you can't read it or decode it. You're not quite sure what it is, or what it means or who owned it or where it came from. But you know it matters. And that's what I feel about Coptic script and all of that, you know, that you can still look at the Rosetta Stone and know that you are in the presence of something really important, even though you can't. So it bypasses here and it gets you there. <laughs> we were investigating just as a little side anecdote. We were on, we were on a, a site in the Isle of Man on a golf course, the 13th <laughs> tee. And we were supposed to be investigating a Christian um, sort of a holy site, a Christian holy site. And about the second day, we started to discover burials. And one of the burials was a woman. And the, the, the air had preserved her hair so well that there was a perfect hank. And she was a Viking period woman. And one of my diggers, Matt, 
had been looking carefully at all the pieces of slate that we were taking out, and he found this carving on the back in Viking letter, uh, Ogham, essentially. We rang up a lady in Cambridge because, like you say, that there is that. It's lovely to have that gap, isn't it? Between yeah, yeah. You can't read it straight away. It's just Ogham, and we were going. My goodness, rang somebody up, and she said she translated it over the phone, and it said twenty Vikings harbored here. Oh wow! Somebody had sort of bothered to write and put that woman's hair. Uh, and then it was an extraordinary thing. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, it's exactly that. And I mean, you obviously would have handled uh, many more extraordinary artifacts than I have because I see them at the end of their journey behind glass um, for the most part. But when I was writing um, one of my books set locally in, in, in Fishbourne, Taxidermist's Daughter, I was doing research into the early part of the 20th century. Um, it was very, very funny because you would see in local, in the local newspaper, essentially people getting irritated. Every time they went out in Fishbourne, they, oh, and another pot, here's another pot, it's in the way, it's spoiling our fields. And it was it was the idea, I love the idea that the artifacts there, Fishbourne Roman Palace, were making their way up to the surface long before anybody knew there was a palace to find. But it was just that, again, lovely moment. People say, what is this? Why is there another jar here? <laughs> Going back to the codex idea, I recently, I don't know if you'd come across this, the Smithsonian did an interesting program on a piece of scroll that had been discovered. And they proved it to be the right paper, the right date, the right age, and hundreds of people had looked at it very carefully. And on just one line, it said, Jesus' wife. And to the fact that a piece of scroll, as in your codex, does that wonderful job in in Citadel of bringing the armies from the air, suddenly we translate that word. And the the resonance of that one word, the arguments, the discussion, the furore about the fact that there appears to be a, a legitimate document, and wow. it refers to Jesus yeah, yeah. having a wife, and you can imagine. And that was in Coptic, extraordinary. And, uh, it, and, and of course, I mean, I was when I was younger, I was always very obsessed with the uh, with Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and of course, that again, it's, it's the finding of those objects and writings and scrolls that reminds you, all of us, you know, I'm a historian monkey, um, I'm a novelist, but I love history. But it, it's the beginning of, of realization that stories are not always what they seem, that there is no one history, that there was a decision about which books to put in the Bible and which to leave out. And that was political, essentially. Um, and without the, those, the discovery, without the archaeology, we don't know any of those things. Um, I'm going to, I'm, I would like to get on to another of your female characters who become a real heroine, Meredith. Yes. Now, Meredith in Sepulchre is, is, trying to discover her family connections with the past. And in a sense, she meets her Leone, who is your your character from the past, your heroine from the past. But I'm going to jump a bit because what interested me, and I, I hope I've got this right, <laughs> there's a deck of cards, the Vernier deck. Yeah. 
and I've had a little bit to do with tarot in my times, being an old hippie. So uh, I, I <laughs> me too. I'm a young hippie, like even this. though I've got a shirt on today for you. <laughs> and I was fascinated by the fact that you chose to take the idea of a Visigoth burial and make the Visigoth burial the place where that deck, for various wonderful reasons, is going to be hidden, and that Leone and Meredith... How did you come to the Visigoth burial bit of that story? And can you just describe the the complicate? This is about Alaric or Alarish, is it? The Visigoth yeah. leader. Alaric, yes. Well, because I'm interested in the patterns of faith. You now I write about faith and the consequences of faith and war and the consequences of war. Um, and though I suppose the way that civilizations and um, empires rise and fall. And so, of course, there's a very interesting period in France in the sort of the 5th century in particular and 5th, 6th, 7th century, where the obviously the Roman Empire has been crumbling for some time. And then you have this extraordinary Goth um, empire. And of course, a lot of people only know, you know, that they're always used as a slang, aren't they? Or, you know, sort of you know, marauders and all the rest of it. But of course, I, was, I became very interested to discover that the Goths were actually Aryan Christians. Um, and that was of must have interest to me. And I suspect like you, I'm terrible for finding one little thing and then thinking, oh, and off down that rabbit hole I go. You know? But it linked because there is a very famous, well, some people would say that it's a hoax. Some people would say that it's true. The, the story of Berenger Saunière, Reine de Chateau, um, and it's very much an industry now there. Thanks to the the book, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which you know predates me by some some big long time. I mean, it was the nineteen eighties, and it, that story has everything. You know, who who is being hoaxed? What was being hoaxed? Was it a hoax at the time? Was it a hoax when the book was written? But there are many little interesting things in there. Not least of all, there is a Visigoth uh, pillar within which the this document, you know, that, that Holy Grail bloodline document is supposed to have been hidden. And the pillar is upside down and this, you know, means all sorts of things. So I wanted to try and link in with the Grand Chateau, but without retreading that. So Sonia is a character, but in the distance. Because for me, what I always love, and I think this goes back to seeing all those archaeologists and loving the, the, the patience and the stamina of archaeology, if you like, the idea that there would there could be a huge secret, but actually more interesting was the secret beneath the secret. And so that's why I wanted to bring the Visigoths in, because that's quite often a forgotten part of the history of the, the southwest of France. It's very much focused on the medieval time, um, but actually, if, and, and the Roman time, a long time before that. But it seemed to me that this Goth, you know, the Visigoth period and the, the battle between Alaric's gang and, and um, in other parts of the family was was much more fascinating. So, you know, it's just an excuse to read, sit around and read books I'm interested in, really. But the interesting, lovely um, detail, which I think I picked up on another book about Al, um, Alaric, yes. was that when they buried a king, they diverted the river, which I think you yes. bring up. Yes, yes. Divert yes. the river, dig the tomb put the gold and everything, including possibly material looted from Jerusalem. That's another story. Yeah. Put the stuff back, bring the river back, and, 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 and that's the way we bury our great Gothic kings. And 
I was rather thrilled to notice that I think the mayor of Cosenza in 2015 proclaimed that he was going to go after the <laughs> of Alaric. And I do not know what happened, but we haven't heard anything. No, we've not. Well, maybe, maybe he was clobbered by the tomb of Alaric. Um, yeah, I, it, it's those sorts of details that I love because, of course, we, we're very familiar now. I mean, thanks to work that you and your team do and, and, and obviously archaeologists the world over, we know that different periods of history have different burial customs and the lengths to which people go to protect the gold and the um not just the but and the bodies of course you know with obviously with the pyramids and the rest of it and i i'm very very close to um a place called kingly vale in sussex here where i walk a lot and of course there's the devil's humps there which they think are iron age um burial grounds possibly and and all of these things but i've i've never heard about the idea of subterranean graves until the Visigoths. And I thought, this is such a good idea. But then, of course, when the climate change and things changing, you know, the river's running dry. So you think of all the, the treasure there might still be for you to find. Just, the, you know, <laughs> it's just great. <laughs>